Thank you very much, uh, Ben, and uh, thank you very much for the uh, invitation. It's, um, it's a real pleasure to uh, be here. And this, uh, as, as you'll begin to see uh, as the paper develops, this is a really a kind of offshoot of that uh, bigger project that, uh, that I've um, just finished. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's a paper that has a, a kind of home and away uh, metropolis and empire and set of dimensions uh, to it. And uh, I take it, well, the, the governing assumption, I guess, of the paper is that the, mo the modern politics of immigration in Britain, uh, at least in the familiar sense of um, the beginning of organised campaigns to change the ways in which governments respond to flows of migrants across territorial boundaries, is primarily a phenomenon of the Finsey Act. However, you evaluate the significance of the 1905 Aliens Act, and there's a lot to say about uh, that. It did at least do two things. It introduced uh, a new kind of public official. Immigration officers were, were really an invention of that legislation. And a new bureaucratic machinery for monitoring and controlling the majority, if not all, of those non-nationals attempting to gain entry and settle within Britain's borders. Largely neglected and ignored by historians and social scientists uh, until fresh cohorts of migrants began to arrive after the Second World War, accounts of the 1905 Act can now be numbered among Britain's cherished island stories with their characteristic emphasis upon how the nation changed in spite of exclusionary legislation. Yet the first decade of the 20th century witnessed two moral panics, not just one, around the question of immigration, and only one of them was concerned with domestic politics. Or rather, the agitation for restricting the numbers of East European Jews, the prime target of the 1905 Act, entering Britain interacted with and was redefined in relation to a controversy about the meaning and future of Britain's empire. The Chinese labour question, as it came to be known, is not well remembered today, but at the time it was hotly debated within Britain and arguably played a more important role in electoral politics than did the alien question itself. In his book, Human Nature in Politics, uh, from 1908, the liberal socialist political theorist and activist Graham Wallace uh, recalled that during the 1906 election period, pictures of Chinamen on the hoardings aroused among very many of the voters an immediate hatred of what he called the Mongolian racial type, and that was the standard descriptor uh, in, uh, in that period. And as further evidence, uh, he conjured up another menacing face and gave it a voice. I quote, An hour before the close of the poll, I saw, with the unnatural clearness of polling day fatigue, a large white face at the window of the ward committee room, while a hoarse voice roared, this is the title from the, for the paper, Where's your bloody pigtail? We cut it off last time and now we'll put it round your bloody neck and strangle you. Wallace is referring to an election that the Liberals very decisively won, though the episode he recounts was obviously unsettling in its violent, racialized invective, and its memory persisted well beyond his party's success. The quotes that uh, I've uh, just given are taken from the third edition of Human Nature and Politics, which appeared in 1920. <coughs> Nevertheless, later studies have tended to confirm the relevance of Wallace's anecdote. A.K. Russell's 1973 book on the 1906 liberal landslide, for example, argues that the Chinese labor question did as much as any other single issue to erode the electoral fortunes of the Tories. And it did so by providing much of the political glue that held the pact between the liberals and their labor allies together. So what was the issue? 
What was at stake here and why did it raise the particular temperature on the hustings to fever pitch? The nub of the question belongs to the fallout from the Anglo-Boer War and the extraordinarily manic mood of jingoism which Britain's oscillation between defeat and victory in that conflict produced. Once the roller coaster had ended in 1901, the building of a new South Africa was urgently on the agenda and its changing fortunes were closely watched at home. Given the scale of South Africa's mineral wealth, the discovery of diamonds there in 1867 had played a major role in intensifying the European scramble for Africa, the output of the colony's mining fields was always going to be a central concern. Yet the disruption caused by the war and the economic downturn that followed led to pressure from the mine owners to secure a cheap and malleable supply of unskilled labour. The two existing alternatives before them were seen as deeply problematic. On the one hand, indigenous African workers, so-called native labour, were said to be unreliable, particularly since they tended to follow fluctuations in the local agricultural economy, and were felt to lack the appropriate modes of labour discipline required in the mines. On the other, unskilled white workers were also regarded with disfavour, since they were relatively expensive and few in numbers. Moreover, they too were seen as posing problems of labour discipline, albeit of a radically different kind. Indeed, the sort of work that white workers sh should undertake was, as we'll see shortly, a very vexed issue in imperial terms, so much so that the pairing of unskilled with white was taken by some commentators to be oxymoronic, if not utterly disastrous. It was in this context that importing workers from China seemed to offer a solution, and in February 1903, the Chamber of Mines in the Transvaal sent a deputation to California, British Columbia, the East Indies, and China to investigate its feasibility. The first three of these destinations were areas where Chinese labor had already been employed, though the list was not ex exhaustive, since it ignored other key zones of settlement, such as Australasia. But fe feasibility here, paradoxically, in includes exclusion since Chinese workers formed the main exception to relatively open policies of immigration. As historian Mei Nai has noted, if Chinese laborers were an, essential, were an essential part of the making of the Pacific world, for example, their presence quickly came into direct conflict with what she calls the racial imperatives of American manifest destiny, according to which the Western seaboard was preeminently the domain of Anglo-Saxon civilization. Their contribution was negated by a variety of local initiatives that sought to prevent them from becoming full civic subjects. Thus, under a new state constitution of 1879, Chinese migrants were denied the right to vote in local elections and could be forcibly deported from California or uh, confined to urban ghettos. Moreover, the circuit court ruled that the Chinese were ineligible to apply for naturalization since they fell outside the racial categories enshrined in the Act. At the same time, Chinese immigration was becoming a national issue, figuring prominently in the 1880 US election. And in 1882, California representatives were finally successful in passing a federal law that suspended Chinese immigration <coughs> into the United States for a period of 10 years. This was the Chinese Exclusion Act, which held the distinction of being the first law to deliberately target a specific ethnic group and arguably paved the way for the racial hierarchies enshrined in the Johnson-Reed Immigration Act of 1924. Australia's assault upon Chinese labour followed the same broad chronology as the United States. Political agitation against Chinese immigration can be traced back to the mid-1850s, following the discovery of gold there, and continued into the 1870s. 
In the late 1870s, individual Australian states began passing exclusion laws and campaigns aimed at restricting immigration quickly slid into calls for the deportation of those who had already entered the country. In this kind of racial discourse, the Chinese played a crucial role in underpinning the standard for what was conceived to be a mutually defined Republican whiteness. So, if we take nationalist, Republican, and anti-imperialist and anti-socialist uh, popular newspapers like the notorious uh, Sydney Bulletin, which in the mid-1880s tirelessly invade against the multi-tentacular grip of the so-called Mongolian octopus, and actually that's a phrase that you find in um, the early pages of, um, of Sakharov's first Fu Manchu book, The Mystery of Dr. Fu Manchu. Uh, he talks there about the, uh, the, the Mongolian octopus as a sort of figure for the kind of Chinese invading force. So the Sydney Bulletin um, invade against the, this phenomenon, leading articles and lurid cartoons, and its inevitable conclusion was that expulsion and expulsion only can meet the necessities of the case. Here, immigration control actually precedes the formation of an exclusivist white Australia ideology. The bulletin set its face against imperial federation on the grounds of racial contamination. In other words, it had a restrictive concept of, uh, of empire. As Sylvia Lawson emphasises in her brilliant study of the vicious and electrifying bulletin, that's, that's her phrase for it, the newspaper's deployment of the slogan, Australia for the Australians, used the term Australian to mean not those who have been merely born in Australia, but all white men with a clean record. One's stance against the Chinese was a condition of a racial universalism that transcended the bonds of empire. It should perhaps be added that anti-Chinese legislation had already brought about a marked decline in the numbers of Chinese migrants by the time that the bulletin's campaign was at its height. If this was what the Chamber of Mines went looking for, in terms of advice, and it was a foregone conclusion that their deputation would argue in its report in 1903 that restrictive legislation would be necessary, would be vital uh, in assuaging popular objections to such a scheme. Indeed, in March 1903, the month immediately after the deputation had, dis had been dispatched, the Chamber of Mines, the Transvaal government and the mine, mine owners joined forces to campaign for the importation of Chinese labour a campaign that showed no scruple in offering bribes to mine workers to speak and vote against anti-Chinese activists at populist meetings and even intimidating them where votes and criticisms failed. More to the point, that same month, the Bloemfontein Conference effectively agreed to take steps to introduce indentured Chinese workers into the unskilled sectors of the labour market, despite discouraging political examples of Australia and the United States. Examples seem to be echoed by the Chinese Exclusion Acts that were quickly passed in the Cape and Natal to keep Chinese workers from, from settling in those territories, in other words, from moving outside the zones where they were contracted to work. The general form of the labour contract was negotiated directly between the British and Chinese governments according to the terms of the Anglo-Chinese Convention uh, signed in Beijing in 1860 and given the Royal Assent. And in May 1904, Chinese workers began to arrive in South Africa for the first time where they were received at a former British concentration camp, examined by a doctor, fingerprinted and given a brass badge inscribed with their individual number and the name of their employer. By the beginning of 1907, some 63,695 Chinese labourers were working in the Transvaal gold mines. 1904 
was therefore a watershed year both in South Africa and in the UK where this question was taken up. The legislative underpinning for this sponsored mode of migration was known as the Labour Importation Ordinance, number 17, 1904 to be precise, which applied to unskilled non-European labourers and spelled out in fine detail those areas of skilled work that were closed to the new arrivals. These included uh, being plumbers, electricians, blacksmiths, machinists, amongst many other categories. And this list formed the basis for the racial segregation of employment for many years to come. As a corollary, Chinese migrants were only permitted to work in the gold mines, and their contracts were for a period of three years. After that time had expired, they were to be repatriated at their employer's expense. Other parts of the contract covered behaviour at work, absences, supervision and residential requirements. These features meshed into a tight system of control and in a number of cases infractions were treated as criminal offences. The ultimate sanction was that these workers could be repatriated unilaterally at any time, virtually without redress. These harsh conditions of employment reflect the racial thinking of the period and this also helps to account for a marked ambivalence in the nature of the criticisms that were levelled at these Chinese workers. To be indentured was to be subject to a legally binding contract that met the minimal requirements associated with wage labour, but which offered the employee very few effective rights vis-à-vis -vis the employer. In his important essay on migrant workers, mar markets and the law, Yash Gai has argued that the concept of in indentured work was part of a post-abolitionist search for new types of labour that could replace that of the slave. If he's correct in identifying 1837 at the moment of its legal inception, this places it just four years after the British Slavery Abolition Act. Yet indenture remained a precarious category, and critics often regarded it as indistinguishable from the practices it was designed to replace. However, while identifying the so-called coolie system with slavery could be a potent source of political sympathy, it could also result in hostility, and it's, it's that movement to and fro between sympathy and hostility which is, which is what I'm centrally concerned with here. To be seen as someone who is no better than a slave was, was a sign of racial debasement, threatening uh, the freedom and security of the modern, that is to say, white wage labourer on racial as much as economic grounds. Indeed, the two were indissoluble. Fear of a recrudescent system of slavery played a powerful role in the anti-Chinese rhetoric of the Working Men's Party in California, for example, during the 1870s, with its resounding slogan, again, deportation here, the Chinese must go. But as we'll see, this ideological complex was by no means limited to post-ballon America. In Britain, the first few months of 1904 saw the Liberals leading a movement against the Labour Importation Ordinance, and on the 21st of March 1904, the party tabled a motion of censure in the Commons, but without success. Five days after this initiative had failed, there was a big TUC demonstration on the Chinese Labour question, in which, according to estimates by correspondence from, from the uh, Manchester Guardian, some 80,000 80, people, largely men, marched on Hyde Park through, via the Houses of Parliament. Amongst the speakers taking part were the characteristic political heavyweights that one would expect to front this sort of event. Men like the Labour leader Ben Tillett and the fiery radical Liberal MP for Battersea, John Burns, alongside representatives of organisations like the National Democratic League, the Liberal Labour League, 
and the Metropolitan Radical Federation, amongst many others. This diversity of support was also evidenced by the 14 speakers' booths in the park. Here, one could listen to around 100 orators, including such nonconformist leaders as Dr. Clifford of the Baptist Union, whose words received the most enthusiastic ovation and prompted choruses for he's a jolly good fellow, and speakers from the white settler territories, ranging from the explorer and colonial administrator, Sir Harry Johnson, who was then looking for a parliamentary seat, to a member of the New Zealand legislature. What then were the terms in which the issue of Chinese labour was raised by this broad coalition against the Conservative and Union government's policy? Marches and demonstrations typically trade in rousing speeches rather than forensic exercises in political analysis, though they are, to some extent, placeholders for more considered opinion formation. But they do reveal the direction that arguments were taking, and in this instance, several points stand out. First of all, there was a strong sense of payback for the Liberal defeat in the so-called Kharki election of 1900, when support for the South African war had been the major vote winner for Conservatives and Unionists. In Ben Tillett's neat line, once the people of this country were khaki mad, but now they are khaki sad, as they contemplated the results of their madness. Unfortunately, the political return of South Africa brought with it the worst excesses of the 1900 campaign. John Burns, who had only just kept his seat in that election, had shown no qualms at that time about attacking what he called Aikimo in Pretoria. And in Hyde Park in 1904, he asserted that the British government was the handmaid of the Jewish plutocracy and the mother of parliaments had become the mistress of monopoly. He was not alone. Mr. Bowerman of the London County Council insisted that South Africa ceased to belong to the Englishman. Instead, our legislators were permitting slavery to be introduced to benefit the Jew magnates, while white men were walking the streets of Johannesburg with nothing to do and starvation before them. Against a background of relatively high unemployment in the UK, the complaint that Mr Chamberlain had said that the South African war was a miners' war, but they now saw plainly how the British miner was being treated, carried some clout. That's the first point. The second point to note is the use of the defining image of slavery. Not only did some of the speeches invoke the names of Wilberforce and Lincoln, but the icon iconography of the rally relied heavily on visualizations of this, fi of this figure. And I mean, I wish some of these uh, banners had survived. As far as I know, they don't. It would be very interesting to, to see how they correspond to the descriptions, in this case, taken from the uh, Times. On one banner, for example, the ghosts of dead soldiers, we'll be meeting those again a little bit later on, watch strings of Chinamen in chains proceeding under armed escort to the gold mines. But the tableau could easily be reversed. In one leaflet, a one-armed but bemedaled Briton is brushing the boots of a supercilious and opium-smoking Chinese. When one MP described the issue of Chinese labour as particularly a working man's question, Part of his argument was that the substitution of British miners would have necessitated a widening of the franchise which the mine owners did not want. To loud cheers, he concluded that the Chinese whom they proposed to introduce would be slaves, but Britishers never would be. Again and again, there's an uncertainty as to who is the true object of sympathy, the Chinese labourer who is being enslaved or the British miner who is being cheated of what's seen as his birthright. Ben Tillett forecast a race war in which the whites and blacks combined to fight the yellow man and his employer. And the secretary of the Amalgamated Society of Engineers, comparing South Africa with Australia, 
reminded his audience that other white settler colonists had steadfastly refused to import yellow labor. That's a quote from the speech. This confusion among liberals and radicals can be traced back to the Kalki election itself. John Burns, for example, uh, I mean, he's a, he is a kind of exceptional example, but he's an interesting, symptomatic uh, instance, I think. Uh, John Burns had spoken out vigorously against Britain's role in the Anglo-Boer War. And in July 1900, he deposed the suppression of the Chinese Boxer Rebellion on similar grounds. Far from being an inferior race, Burns had insisted that the Chinese are far more civilized than we, with advanced knowledge in science, economics, and cultural matters generally. But he appeared to see no contradiction in campaigning just as vigorously against Chinese workers. Vote for John Burns and no to Chinese labor was one of his uh, slogans on the electoral uh, posters. And in a similar vein, the rhetoric of the Sydney Bulletin cited earlier, uh, sorry, in a similar vein to the rhetoric of the Sydney Bulletin cited earlier, he argued for the equal rights of all white men over the world uh, in his October election address. How was the argument conducted away from the febrile atmosphere of the political meeting or the hustings? Perhaps the best and most revealing example of the intellectual case against the importation of Chinese labor into South Africa from within the upper echelons of the Liberal Party was advanced by Herbert Samuel in an essay from the Contemporary Review in April 1904. Samuel came from a political family, but at the time he wrote on the Chinese labor question, he was still a fairly new Liberal MP. Um, he's not well remembered today, but he held a number of major offices in government, serving as uh, Home Secretary on two separate occasions, acting as the party's leader at the beginning of the 1930s during the period of national government, and he was also the first practicing Jew to be a member of the British cabinet, and at the time of the British mandate, he was the first High Commissioner of Palestine. In 1904, he'd already established a reputation as an impressively well-informed and meticulous parliamentarian, perhaps not liked all that much, um, who had published an important statement of where he thought the Liberals should be going politically and philosophically in his 1902 book, Liberalism, an attempt to state the principles and proposals of contemporary, li contemporary liberalism in England. Uh, and so he's really a, um, one of the leading lights in the movement towards a new, a new liberalism uh, in, in, uh, in this period. Advocate, advocating a much stronger measure of, of state control than had been uh, countenanced in the 50 years uh, be, before that. So what was his view of the Chinese labor question in this period? He started his essay by arguing that Britain had entered a new era. It's a, it's a fascinating um, uh, document, uh, uh, this, uh, this essay, I think, uh, together with an essay that I'll be going on to say a little bit about in a moment, which is, which is just simply called Immigration. Uh, which was published in the uh, Economic Journal. The days, uh, Britain's entering a new era. The days of conquest, loot, and territory, a quote from the essay, were over. And the massive shifts in population that accompanied them were a thing of the past. In their place, economic migration was changing the internal composition of most countries across the globe, including the bulk of the British Empire. A quote. India has overflowed into Mauritius, Natal, East Africa, and the West Indies. Many parts of the Malay Peninsula are becoming more Chinese than Malay. Polynesians have filled the sugar plantations of Queensland. Closer to home, Samuel's final example is particularly interesting. Russia, Poland, and Germany, he writes, have annexed large districts in East London, 
because these race movements and notes that race boundaries are no longer fixed. But I think it's clear that in this part of the essay at least, uh, race is primarily a synonym for nation, as it often was at that time. On the very first page, for example, he refers to, quote, a gradual transformation or mingling of nationality. But as we'll see, the emphasis quickly undergoes a decisive shift, for ultimately migration, he says, raises grave questions of what may be termed race policy. And race policy is his, is his term for defining you know, what the essay is really all about. Given that international travel was becoming safer and cheaper, the argument continues, how these population flows were to be managed was amongst the most difficult problems faced by statesmen in the empire and at home. And he returns to this theme in the essay that I mentioned for the economic journal from, I think, the same year, uh, on immigration, a piece that should be read in tandem with his paper on Chinese labour. Who is allowed to go where and what principles are to be invoked in making such decisions is absolutely key here. And there's no suggestion that the laissez-faire defence of the free movement of labour will do. This, then, is how Samuel summarises what he calls the leading issue. The leading issue is whether the influence of the British state should be used so as to secure that the temperate regions of the empire shall be the homes of the white races or be largely inhabited by Mongolians. That's the Mongolian octopus. It appears again. There are really two questions at stake in this quotation. Firstly, that of the proper role of the state, and secondly, that of the problem of race. The answer to the first question regarding the function of the British state is yes, it should be the state and not, let's say, the mine owners who decide questions of migration and settlement. As a new statist liberal, Samuel had no reservations about this. Indeed, the liberal critique of the state under the Tories or Unionists was that it had been captured by the mine owners, or rather that that was the claim that radicals like John Burns were making, and not just the like of John Burns, uh, at a crowded liberal demonstration against Chinese slavery in South Africa, held in Sheffield on the 30th of March 1904, one of the speakers had urged this quote, this country was not prepared to allow South Africa to be handed over to a company of German Jews. As we'll see in a moment, this was very convenient not to say a downright embarrassing argument to uphold uh, by those political figures at that time. The answer to the second question, that is, which race should be permitted to occupy these more hospitable imperial climes, was much more complicated. The answer could not be the Chinese or Mongolians, and this for two different reasons. Firstly, according to Samuel, the Chinese were simply too competitive. As he put it, they were able to flourish, his word, to flourish anywhere. For the classes of Chinese who are accustomed to emigrate work tirelessly and will endure an excessively low standard of living. Samuel knew this argument well, for it was exactly the same argument, though not applied to the Chinese, that featured heavily in the Alien Immigration Bill that the Conservatives have been trying to push through Parliament between February and July 1904, which was the, the, the first attempt to, to, to pass uh, uh, an Aliens Bill, uh, and, and it failed, and they had to bring in a second attempt in 1905. Secondly, uh, and more seriously, Samuel accepted the view of the Chinese as a degraded or uncivilized population that was a staple of anti-Chinese campaigns in the United States and Australia that they were unclean, addicted to gambling, belonged to dangerous secret societies, and, quote, where they live in celibate communities, 
The peculiar degrading vices, which unquestionably they often carry with them, make them highly undesirable as immigrants. In other words, they were sexually undesirable too. There is a very characteristic fear of numbers lurking around this essay. The Chinese number of fourth of mankind, Samuel notes, and while the conservative case is the importation into, into South Africa will be small in volume and temporary in duration, Samuel thought it highly likely that, quote, the great Chinese community will be established in permanence in the midst of the white population and will, will expand across the whole of Africa. Incidentally, this Orientalist racial fantasy of unendingly, quote, hyperbolical numbers, a monstrous aggregation of human beings swelling continuously, goes back at least as far as Thomas de Quincey's opium-soaked meditations on Chinese treachery and the colourful phrases that I've just quoted about uh, hyperbolical numbers and monstrous aggregations of human beings, they're taken from, uh, straight from uh, de Quincey. In Samuel's brisk and more sober analysis, the argument slides into a different kind of fantasy. In some ways, the obverse of Bentillet's imagined race war, in which Chinese laborers not only undersell the white population, but intermarry with the black. This alternative he regards as, quote, intolerable, his word again. As intolerable as the introduction of Chinese under conditions of near slavery. Interestingly, Samuel's preferred solution would have been to draw upon white workers but to employ much smaller numbers than have usually been thought to be possible. His argument here is that the mine owners had underinvested in new labour-saving machinery. That's to say, Samuel tacitly seems to accept the worries expressed by the owners that any large-scale importation of British workers into the Transvaal would lead to problems of labour discipline. This anxiety clearly reflects the growth and militancy of trade unionism at home, and particularly in Australia. There's a phrase in Samuel's essay that he uses to paraphrase the mine owner's fears, this dread of a second Australian democracy, which positions Australia as a sort of rogue democracy, suggesting perhaps that it is the very undeferential culture promoted by populist rights like the Sydney Bulletin that's of concern here. Samuel was a staunch opponent of attempts to control immigration into the United Kingdom and he spoke and wrote extensively against the parliamentary bills that eventually became the 1905 Aliens Act. But as we've seen, his concept of the state was not one that precluded government intervention into the movement of migrants. One reason for taking this stance becomes clear from the essay on immigration, where Samuel insists that the doctrine of natural rights is now dead. No political scientist nowadays believes in such fictions, he says. So, in good Benthamite fashion, Samuel argues that the test of the desirability of migration, in any given case, is finally a matter of how far the evidence shows that admitting certain migrants into society contributes to its aggregate well-being. Uh, today, we probably again say happiness, just as Bentham uh, once did. And oddly enough, although Samuel regarded the right of asylum as beyond dispute, he generally held that political questions were essentially empirical in character, each to be decided on its peculiar merits. From this perspective, Jewish migrants were not a problem, being small in number and well equipped to assimilate, whereas he argues that the Chinese had proved by long experience to be unable to be assimilated by white peoples. Though he does argue that in Java, Malaya and Borneo, Chinese immigration represents, quote, an element more progressive and in many respects on a higher plane than the local population. 
But reading Samuel's essay on immigration, it's hard not to feel that the Chinese figure as a doppelganger for arguments about the Jews, undercutting indigenous employees, keeping to their separate communities, threatening to arrive in ever larger numbers, etc., etc. Samuel's Tory adversaries stoutly maintained that it was hypocritical for liberals to side with white South African workers against indentured Chinese labour, while at the same time attacking the Aliens Bill for attempting to control the numbers of migrants entering Britain. Of course, the converse accusation could easily have been levelled at the Tories themselves, though in practice the liberals tended to, to compartmentalise the issues, denouncing slavery on the one hand while extolling freedom on the other. But Samuel's own hierarchically informed views on race policy led him into some curious attachments. At the turn of the century, one of his new friends and disciples was a former New Zealand liberal politician, William Pember Reeves, who was to spend the last three decades of his life in London, including 11 years as director of the London School of Economics. Influenced by the new liberalism, Reeves attended meetings between left-wing liberals and right-wing socialists at the Rainbow Circle, and he wrote a pamphlet for the Fabian Society on the state and its function in New Zealand. But Reeves also wrote for the radical right house journal, The National Review, too. In an essay on the exclusion of aliens and undesirables from Australia and New Zealand in, in December 1901, for example, Reeves actually cited the Sydney Bulletin's jingle, White at the Core, and argued that Australasia faced two distinct kinds of immigration problems. The first of these is the inflow of coloured aliens, while the second was the nuisance caused by the European practice of shooting moral and physical rubbish into young countries as though they were made to be treated like waste plots of ground in the environs of cities where sanitary arrangements are primitive. With a little light editing, these, these sentiments, which I'm quoting, <coughs> could have been taken from anti-alien speeches that were, that were the stock in trade of British restrictionists like Arnold White and Major William Evans Gordon. Reeves recognised the existence of a natural migratory law of population. And it's a phrase also, I think, that anticipates Samuel's own later thoughts on the uh, topic. And he expressed some reluctance at the idea of interfering in the free transit of civilised beings from one friendly land to another, as he put it. But just as it was necessary to protect manufacturers from adulterating their products or employing Chinese labour, so the threat to, quote, the purity and full efficiency of the superior race required state intervention. He certainly knew whereof he spoke. On three separate occasions in the mid-1890s, he tried to bring in anti-immigrant legislation, much of it directed against Chinese worker, under the slogan, Chinese competition is not fair competition. But he failed. Thought to be pandering to dubious populist movements in New Zealand, like the Anti-Chinese League, these initiatives did little for his reputation as a statesman. Even his first undesirable immigrants bill in 1894 earned him the sobriquet undesirable Bill Reeves in the New Zealand press. However badly it had played at home, Reeves' general line was very much in tune with liberal rhetoric in Britain on the Chinese labour question. As a final example, consider the articles written in uh, South Africa for the Daily Chronicle, that best and brightest Hickney newspaper. Uh, the author was Thomas Naylor, and later collected in a 30-page booklet entitled Yellow Labour, The Truth About the Chinese and the Transvaal published in October 1904. Grossly inflating the numbers of indentured labourers who'd arrived in South Africa to 100,000 and deploying tendentious subheadings like heritage one for aliens, Thomas Naylor observed 
the, the shambling mine workers in their compound, and he has a sort of set piece in which they, they, they come out of the compound uh, uh, sheds one morning, and he looks at them and he asks rhetorically, were these undersized and badly nourished specimens of humanity, aliens in race, in tongue, in ideas and in standards of living, to be the people of the new dominion? And he seems, he says, to hear the answer coming from the graves of British soldiers, and they're saying, no. South Africa's at a crossroads, he says, poised between the possibility of a new white commonwealth on the one hand and the other of a society that's going to be polarized like never before, with on the one hand millionaires rich beyond dreams of avarice, and on the other what he calls alien surf labor, the extreme. Yet the shambling former slum dwellers that he says come from Canton or Hong Kong, which they didn't, uh, depicted in this passage are, are familiar figures, I think, from the wider literature on the generation, figures that populated the anti-alien anti imagination at home. Once the Liberals had gained power in 1906, they, they did what those ghostly ancestral voices in Naylor's Yellow Labour had demanded, and despite initial resistance from the Transvaal mining industry, they stopped any further recruitment, refused to renew existing contracts, and gradually phased out the system over a two-and-a-half-year period using a program of voluntary repatriation. But for all their differences, I want to conclude, the Liberals and the Conservatives were actually united through their adherence to a degenerationist racial paradigm. What divided them was simply the application of the model. The Conservatives and the unions, Unionists believed that the presence of the Chinese was a perfectly manageable short-term solution on better terms than those offered to indentured labourers in the past, and one that would restore South Africa to economic health. To this end, they were prepared to argue that life in the compounds was, if not ennobling, at least bracing and restorative in comparison with, quote, the degraded and besotted wreck of humanity one was likely to find in the slums of Kimberley. However, there was a more formidable danger that the recourse to Chinese labour held at bay. According to the Imperial South Africa Association, a kind of white empire pressure group, colour always, uh, always trumped capital on the Cape, and this was the secret of the colony's success. In other words, the colony had, was successful because it got the balance of colour right. The real point in importing Chinese workers was to safeguard the racial division of labour by which skilled employment was reserved for whites, thus guaranteeing a status of white citizenship a quote, incomparably superior to that of the coloured population. White citizenship has its domestic complement here too. The rate of pay for skilled workers supports both man and wife, and so avoids, quote, the artificial changing of, of women's true sphere. The white man who ignores the link between race and skill, quote, declasses himself, and thus, another quote, degenerates socially ipso facto, a decline that evidently has gender implications and manifested in recurrent anxieties about interracial sexual contact and miscegenation. Worse still, if the country were to find itself forced to resort to unskilled white labour, then it would have to recruit in the cheapest market, and that labour would inevitably be, quote, the scum of Europe, the deadbeats, whom Europe does not want and has no room for, including Swedes, Lithuanians and Russian Poles creating, quote again, a huge population of mean whites. And it's kind of interesting category, the mean whites that you want to keep out as well. 
again raising fears of racial mixing. The mean rights were precisely the ones who were undiscriminating in, in terms of, uh, of whom, whom they were associated with sexually. Such a move away from reliable British stock would produce a new pauperism and would introduce an alien's question to South Africa, again quoting from the pamphlet, such as we are trying today to combat in Europe. At this point, the argument the Chinese Labour question and the alien, the argument the Chinese Labour question and the aliens questions uh, start to become ideologically indistinct, an equivalence that can, bo can cut both ways. After 1906, the Liberal Party found itself obliged to administer the new Aliens Act and to find a remedy for the Chinese Labour problem in South Africa. One of the enduring points made by Graham Wallace in Human Nature and Politics is that racial represent representations are at once highly volatile and highly mobile. In a Liberal Party 1906 election poster that has survived um, called Learn to Think Imperially, the Great Election Puzzle, even former Liberal Joseph Chamberlain is shown in Chinese dress, sporting a pigtail in an effort to make his ideas seem ridiculous. Wallace argued that the Chinese face on such anti-Tory posters, quote, tended slowly to identify itself in the minds of the conservatives with the liberals who had used them. In Wallace's memory, it is a liberal who is being threateningly asked, where's your bloody pigtail? And it's a liberal who risks being strangled with the pigtail he has conjured up.